This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. I am delighted to welcome back for a fourth time, I believe, Steve Patterson to the podcast. Steve, how are you? I'm doing great, Isaac. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Yeah, likewise. And it's been so fun to follow you as you have, you know, as what has it been now? Two years, a year and a half since you went full time. I'm going to be an independent intellectual. Yeah, almost exactly two years now. It's been really, really fun to follow. And um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Steve's been on several previous episodes, well worth checking out. Um, and stevepatterson.com, you can find all kinds of Steve's work, uh, articles, podcasts, um, you know, his own podcast, which is excellent, um, books that he's written, a couple different books on a wide range of topics. So I want to kind of cover, I want to kind of jump around today and cover a lot of different stuff and get a little bit more personal, get a little bit more behind, not just the ideas you deal with, but the experience of doing what you do on a personal level and sort of what you've learned and and how you approach everything. Okay. So, well, the first thing I noticed just today as I'm browsing your website, when I clicked on the ideas and you have all these sort of categories of the different things you write about and create podcasts and videos about, Mm -hmm. and I clicked on popular and I thought this was really interesting the first six or whatever that come up as the most popular are things like, um, you know, Cantor, who's a mathematician I didn't previously know about until you is wrong. There are no infinite sets. There are things about, um, you know, about things like metaphysics and epistemology, like really heady stuff. And what I think is interesting is that there's kind of an assumption, certainly by many academics, but by I think most people that, in order to sustain yourself and have fans or get people interested in reading blog posts or whatever, everything has to devolve to this sort of clickbait, the basest possible thing. Just everything's going to devolve into like emoji videos of people in bikinis eating tacos or something, you know, or like, <laughs> you know, three weird things that this doctor doesn't want you to know or whatever. Right, right. But I found it really interesting that. The, the work you're doing, you are very, you are not afraid to get really deep, really heady, um, really nerdy, and it seems to be working. And some of these things are really mm-hmm. taking off. Would you mm-hmm. agree, disagree? Do you feel pressure ever as a creator that your audience wants you to go a certain direction or you can't go as deep as you want to? Or sort of what have you found? What's been the feedback as you've gone out mm-hmm. there and tried to, to make it and get traction doing things that are not supposed to be popular? Mm. So it's, it's a great question. Um, and I'll start off by saying thank you for bringing up that most popular section because I have to manually update that. And I haven't done so in a while. So there's a few more uh, heretical pieces about math and geometry that aren't in that section. So I need to I need to revise that. Um, yeah, it's funny. That's the first thing. Maybe it's because I'm like, a you know, one of these clickbait, low attention span. When I go to ideas, the first thing I was, <laughs> I want to see what are the most popular ideas. Right, um, right. You know, infinite things do not exist. There are no objective right. definitions. This is some pretty, pretty cool stuff. Right. Okay. So to answer your question, first of all, I want to say starting off, I had no idea what the reception would be to these kind of writings. Um, I am unfamiliar with other independent intellectuals who are doing this kind of work 
really getting in the weeds and trying to communicate in a way that both people who are familiar with the ideas, like if you're talking about the philosophy of math, they'll be able to follow along and understand what I'm talking about. And people who are totally unfamiliar, who've never heard anything about Cantor or infinite sets or anything like that, they'll also be able to get up to speed. So is there a market for that? I had no idea. Turns out there is. Uh, it turns out, in fact, that's what people really like. So when I first started maybe a couple years ago, uh, full time, I had most of the stuff I had written was little small articles, you know, a thousand words here, a thousand words there, typical blog post type stuff. Then I think the first really long piece that I wrote, I'm not sure if it was the first, but one of the first was this piece on quantum physics and, and interpretations of uh, quantum mechanics and the competing ones and one particular interpretation that I find silly. That was like, a, I don't know, four, 4,000 words, something like that, four and a half thousand word piece. No idea if anybody's going to be interested in reading some dude on the Internet's, you know, evaluation of, of this. But that was my first like mega hit. I don't know. It's probably got more than 100,000 hits, I would imagine, over its mm -hmm. lifetime. Just super mega massive hit. Um, that was that was my first introduction to be like, OK, well, apparently some people are ready for dealing with these kind of deeper questions. And since then, I've done a bunch of articles like that um, and they've done they've done really well. And the the response I get from people who are my supporters or people who are my followers is all positive. They love it. They love it for a few reasons. One is because I'm actually going down to the fundamentals of these areas of thought, which is where all the work really needs to be is in the fundamentals. Because if the fundamentals are wrong, it doesn't really matter all of the nice deductions that have follow from flawed fundamentals. So my work examines the fundamentals. People enjoy that. And two, I have desperately tried to make my one actual marketable skill to be writing. So like I don't, mm. most of what I do is intellectual, it's conceptual, it's just sorting things out for myself because I'm a selfish thinker and I just want to discover things for myself, but that doesn't pay the bills. So the thing that I have to do is be able to communicate. Sometimes it's through, you know, the videos that I do weekly, I have a podcast, but when I'm contributing really unique content is in writing. So I've been able to write in a way that I think um, has, has a, a broad appeal because pretty much everybody can understand it if you take the time to, you know, figure out if there's terms that you understand, you know, can Google them. But I try to write things out in a really straightforward way. So, yeah, I, I, it turns out there's an audience for this and it's growing. And, I, and I'm only I've only been emboldened um, to go even deeper. So specifically, this one area of thought I found needs the most examination and it has for the past 80 years is the philosophy of mathematics. And it gets really, really deep into the weeds. And, it, and it, eventually it's going to go a little bit into the history of the philosophy of mathematics because people are totally unaware of all the different controversies in the past 80 years. But that's something that m virtually everybody, myself included, you know, two years ago, three years ago would say there's no way you can have a popular article that's meaningfully contributing to the world of ideas written on a personal blog about Gödel's incompleteness theorems. Hmm. Like there's no, like, that's impossible, but that's just not true. That That is definitely possible. I think people are, are craving it. So that's my, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it really does. And it, and it already kind of partially answers sort of what I was going to ask next, which is, would you say if you have a, okay, you're, you're, you know, you're your own company, you're, you're Steve Patterson, Inc. Steve Patterson, the independent intellectual, this is mm -hmm. what you do, it's your identity. And it's also how you earn a living. Would you say that your mission statement is primarily geared towards, I want to, you know, change people's minds or teach people a certain thing, or is it primarily, 
I just want to do this stuff selfishly to figure out some, get some answers to some questions for myself. Like which, where do you find yourself? Cause it sounds like you have to have a little balance. Cause you mentioned before, I want to selfishly learn, but I need to make sure I have a, enough of an audience that I can sustain myself if I want to do this full time. And so mm-hmm. I've got to make sure I'm doing things that are valuable to people. Do you, do you ever feel that tension in a negative way? Like I'm so frustrated. I want to do this, but if I want to pay the bills, I have to do this other thing. Or how do you deal time. with that? Yeah, all, I feel that all the time. I mean, if I if I were born a trust fund baby, nobody would know of my existence and I would write nothing. Um, I am totally a selfish thinker. And I, primarily, like, what I am in my, what I feel like my... Well, I'm glad you weren't cycle. born a trust fund baby then, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I am a learner. I'm not a communicator first. I'm not a... Uh, I'm not a... Anything else that's primarily what I am myself, my core, what resonates with me is learning, is selfishly learning. It just, it is like the most intense crack for my brain. I'm addicted to it. I love it. I've always loved it. That's just who I am. But because I wasn't born trust fund baby, um, I bump into reality. And the reality is that I can't just learn. Um, that doesn't create value for other people, which means they don't give me money, which means I can't pay the bills. Now, fortunately, I'm incredibly, I am, I am the luckiest person for this psychological disposition because one, I live in the, the modern world where we have access to the internet and I don't have to be in academia. I don't have to sell my soul. I don't have to deal with all the ridiculous nonsense, anti-intellectualism and pettiness that is rampant throughout the academic system, which is amazing. And I have way more research ability than virtually anybody else throughout history just because of the technology that I have access to. And two, probably even more than that, I've had a wife that has supported me for a while, where up until really the beginning of this year, maybe until February, I was making almost no money. So only once I started the podcast and I, my audience was big enough and I got some sponsorships for my show and I've now been able to market stuff, I was knee deep in my own research doing stuff that few people were interested in and it was only because I had a loving and supportive wife that said, hey, I see your mission, I believe in you, it's gonna pay off and I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna bring in the bacon while you're doing this, she, while you're she's doing your this. first, she's your angel investor. I hope she has, she you know, part of the equity. <laughs> yeah, yes, definitely. And it's not like I'm making a ton of money right now, but it is, I'm imagining by the end of this year, it's going to be game over. It's going to be a hundred percent, um, fully funded. Uh, the, the, what I'm going to be doing is not just intellectual content. I've got this really, really big game plan for other entrepreneurial things. Like I want to help other people do what I'm doing. I want to start mm. Not not a university by any stretch of the imagination, but I want to start a kind of new system in modern intellectuals who are serious about ideas need new systems. Yeah. And I want to try to bring them into existence. Now, that's a huge market because I'm sure there's thousands and thousands of people all over the globe that are in the same circumstance I'm in. They're, they love ideas. They can't go into academia because they can't put up with the pettiness in academia. Their, their minds are too big to be stuck in this small little box of the academic system, but they don't have an option. So if I give them an option, I feel like not only am I contributing to the world of ideas, there's also a huge amount of uh, entrepreneurial opportunity to make a lot of money there. So I, I, don't, I don't doubt that that's going to be not a problem. It's just I was incredibly lucky to have the uh, the venture capitalist, my wife, who was <laughs> crazy enough to say, hey, yeah, Steve, you're, you know, you're writing things about, you know, the philosophy of mathematics and your own personal interpretation of quantum physics. Yeah, that'll pay off eventually. You I know, mean, it's, and- it's so exciting that you're talking about, you know, trying to kind of help create a new system, a new framework 
to help other people do this because I think one of the things that I run into all the time with Praxis is a lot of people are like, yeah, man, you're totally right. College, like if you're going to go, you know, go into business or sales or start a company, nothing you're going to gain in college but debt and wasted time. Totally on fire, totally with you. But, you know, if you're going to be, there's always a handful of things. And most of them are things that like legally require a degree, doctor, mm-hmm. whatever, lawyer. Or, you know, if you're really, I'm, I'm just really into ideas and research and whatever. So basically like, I, I just have to submit to this system as stupid as it is, or I have to right. just give up and like go get a job. And now I'm never allowed to like be a thinker. Now there's several problems with that. I mean, one is, you know, you don't, you don't have to earn your money the same way that you sort of earn your meaning. Um, right. you know, you can, you can wash cars and make money to live while you write philosophy books on the side. That's, that's one acceptable outcome, depending upon who you are. You've got to, you got to find it for yourself. But the other mm-hmm. one is like, there's so much entrepreneurial opportunity right now the barriers have never been lower, not just to get enough to eat based on your ideas, your work, but to to surpass dramatically the typical academic in terms of mm-hmm. your impact, in terms mm-hmm. of your audience. Instead of, you know, having a class of people that were just handed to you, here, teach these 30 people logic every Tuesday morning at nine. Oh, and by the way, none of them want to be there at all. They're just doing this as part of the cost of getting a piece of paper that they hope right. will make their parents happy. That's such an unhappy job. Like I've guest lectured in classes before and it's, I could never do it. My ego is too fragile. I don't like talking to people that don't want to listen to me, that don't get excited by my ideas and laugh at my jokes. And so the ability to reach your audience, people that self-select, that want to hear it in and of itself is just so fulfilling and there's so much room for that. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I really deeply feel bad for the modern true intellectual who is stuck in the academic system. The idea that you got to teach these people that are totally uninterested, you got to put up with bureaucracy, you got to put up with these anti-intellectuals that pervade the academic system. And then your, your outlet, your pure intellectual outlet, the work that you have to that you want to produce, the work you want to research has to go through this system, this vetting system, which is laughable, which is archaic. It's from the Stone Age. Oh, well, you got to submit it and have, you know, two complete strangers review it independently. And then it's going to be monitored by this referee. It's garbage. It's nonsense. There's flaws throughout it. And I feel really bad for people that know they're onto something. They know they have some brilliant idea, something that's not been said. And other individuals are gatekeepers. They know you you cannot release this idea to the world. That's crazy. That is crazy. And there's an alternative. So if you're somebody that has a great idea, but you know you it's not phrased the right way, or one of the one of the criticisms I, criticisms I get from these people is, oh, you're not engaging with the literature. So <laughs> that's the, it, it, the worst it, phrase ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, I don't. I'm not talking about the literature because I'm not in the system. I don't have to play that game. I don't have to go through and put little footnotes and put little quotes that are irrelevant. The, the, to the argument ideas is good or it isn't. Like exactly. whether or not you're engaging the literature. Exactly. So there's like there's this forced humility, this this forced pseudo humility that they want you to have in the academic system. Like, oh, you can't just talk. You can't just create a new theory of of geometry. No, you have to engage these other thinkers. You have to cite them. You have to quote them. You have to play along. You have to play this communal groupthink thing. And I don't want to play it. And I and I'm sorry for the people that are stuck in the system that they have to play it. But fortunately, I want to be able to demonstrate you don't have to play it. And in fact, if you have the skills, if you have the passion, if you have the competence for communication, you can actually have a go researching something as abstract and out there as you want and still make a living at it. If you can communicate in an effective enough way. So this uh, this one of the self-perpetuating things 
of this kind of academic guild system where everybody suffers through it, like, like many forms of human suffering, there is a tendency after you've done something that took a lot of work and pain to not only normalize it, but to now really want to make sure everyone who comes after you has to suffer just as much, right? I mean, you see this in a lot of areas of, of human life, you know, well, I had to do this, that, and the other thing, you shouldn't be able to just, you know, skip to the front of the line, whatever. And I've had, I, I emailed, um, to my email newsletter to my email list, um, which by the way, you can sign up for at isaacmorehouse.com, um, a list of things I had been reading and enjoying lately. And one of them was your article, uh, pi is a rational finite number. And I said, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not a math expert, but I thought this was really interesting and compelling, pretty fun stuff. Check it out. And I had somebody respond and we had a sort of a long back and forth and you know, he had some objections, this, that, and the other thing. And he spent quite a bit of time. It was like a 10 email chain perhaps. Um, and I had suggested a couple of times, well, you should debate Steve, or you should write an article like Steve loves. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I could tell, Steve likes it when people engage on the actual arguments mm-hmm. don't just say mm-hmm. like how arrogant of you to say this, but like <laughs> actually, right. and he was like, Oh, I don't know. I don't have the time. Blah, blah, blah. But one of the main things was, look, I went to grad school. I wrote a paper challenging some foundational belief. It was really painful I had, it, I spent five years researching this thing. It went through this process. Everyone was criticizing it because it was questioning something. And I had to go through this whole peer review and whatever. And basically Steve ought, it's so arrogant of him to think he can just write without suffering the same way I did. And my first right. thought is, well, why did you do all that? If you had a good paper, uh, why don't you just release it to the whole world? And and there's a, there's this belief that what you're doing is somehow arrogant. How dare you just go out and talk about things, you know, to the unwashed masses without first going through the referee process, blah, blah, blah. Right. My, my take is that whether or not you are a, an arrogant person is irrelevant. The action itself shows to me a great deal of humility because it takes mm-hmm. a lot of humility to say, I know that I'm, I'm not going to be assumed to be right because I don't have credentials that make people automatically give me the benefit of the doubt. Um, I'm, I'm whatever new venturing into this. I'm not completed with my whole thing yet. I'm, I don't have the safety net of saying other people also agree with me and, and approved Mm -hmm. this. I'm willing to risk putting this out into the world and risk being thought foolish. And that takes Mm -hmm. some humility. That takes a commitment to exploring the ideas openly, even if you might be wrong and like it's like entering into the discussion earlier, not waiting until yes. it's all approved to enter it into the world and say, there world, what do you think of it now that it's all footnote and reference and proper and agree? Like, I want to think out loud and I want you to engage with me, you know? Thank you, Isaac. I totally agree. And, and here's an, ex- uh, now there's a great example of it when we're, t- especially when we're talking about math, <clears throat> what I am saying somewhat interpret as arrogance, but I think that comes from some, some self-consciousness on those individuals behalf here he, here's the level of what i would say is true intellectual humility i'm willing to say this publicly i have tried to learn the the fundamentals of geometry i've learned the basics of euclidean geometry and other non-euclidean geometries i have tried to study and say what is what are the real bare bones concepts that are foundational from which we construct higher level thinking in doing so, I have not been able to wrap my head around what is the metaphysical status of a point, of a line, of a circle. I can't make sense of this. I've done the research. I can't make sense of it. And therefore, I am going to construct a theory based on what I think lines, points, and circles are. And 
It just so happens that that theory contradicts some parts of Euclidean geometry. But if I'm wrong, if you can teach me and help me understand and make sense of these concepts, I will totally be on board. I will be the biggest proponent of orthodox geometry that there is if you can make sense of these concepts for me. Now, that takes a measure of, I would say, intellectual humility because I really am putting myself out there. Wouldn't it be silly? How embarrassing would it be to say Euclidean geometry has been around for 2,000 years? It's, it's been for up, up until really the last half of the 19th century. It was other parts of mathematics were pretty much built on top of Euclidean geometry, right? That is the what intellectuals have thought was like the highest discipline for two millennia. And I'm saying, hey, guys, sorry, I'm raising my hands. This, I actually disagree with some of these concepts. These don't make sense to me. And I can't find a sensible resolution to these questions. And since nobody can give me the sensible resolutions, I'm going to have to build my own theory. So now I, I guess you could view that as arrogant, but I view that as being really, really putting myself out there because if it turns out I've made some little elementary error that, oh, I, I, I should have realized was some other way. I just made some stupid mistake. I'm going to look like a fool, right? I got to use the Nassim Taleb uh, term. I've got skin in the game. I've got my reputation yes. on the line. Like, yes. oh, Steve wrote a 4,000 word article saying that he's creating a new theory of geometry because he thinks Euclidean geometry is wrong because of metaphysics. And he, he did so because there was a typo. Or like, you know, he made some silly error, a silly basic concept that can be resolved in five minutes. That's the end of my brand. Like, I, I look like a total idiot. And, so and I'm the just, one putting myself out there. And not just reputation, but it's so cool to me that you are deliberately trying to earn a living in this way. Because that that creates what we mentioned before. It's a very difficult tension to navigate because you want to pursue the things that are interesting to you and the way that are interesting to you, but you also want to be doing it in a way that's creating value for other people and trying to both not sort of sell out, you know, which I think people uh, assume is easier <laughs> than it actually is. <laughs> it's not, it's not actually easy to just sell out and be a millionaire. Um, <laughs> but without doing that or without being so irrelevant or so incorrect that, you know, you're, you're unable to attract an audience, um, that kind of skin in the game, that constant feedback, I think keeps you at once sharp and willing to be daring and take risks because often innovators get the rewards and do things that you wouldn't think are supposed to work, sort of buck the the common knowledge, but also keeps you grounded so you don't go too far down your own rabbit hole and sort of lose touch with the rest of the mm -hmm. world like you probably, mm -hmm. you know, might if you had a trust fund. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I want to ask you about the relationship with your audience. So you have supporters on mm. Patreon. Um, but and, before we get into that, can oh, yeah. I say one more? I just yeah, want to please. add something. Okay. So I want to put a little, I want to put a little meat on the bones here. Um, we're, we're talking about math and these types of things. So let me give you an example. <clears throat> In standard Euclidean geometry, the, I, the, the unit of which all shapes are supposedly composed of is the point. Lines are made up of an infinite number of points. Now, if you accept certain premises, th that's a consistent theory, makes a bunch of sense. But you've got this sticky question, how can you have a point which in the uh, framework of Euclidean geometry is zero-dimensional, meaning it, take, it has no extension in any dimension, how can a zero-dimensional object construct objects which have dimensions? How can you have a line which has one or two dimensions, depending on how you define a line? How can you construct something with a bunch of zeros and end up with a one? Now, nobody has been able to explain that. 
And that's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. And here's the remarkable thing. The, some of the responses that I, well, a large, large part of the responses I get when I ask these types of questions is people say, oh, this is so obvious, Steve. Mathematics isn't about the real world. Mathematical objects aren't, they don't exist. This is, this is a defense of Euclidean geometry. Mathematical objects don't exist. Well, hang on a second. If this theory that is pervasive for the past 2,200 years is talking about objects that don't exist, is there any room for an alternative theory? Maybe I want to learn about a geometry that talks about objects that do exist. I want to know about a theory that talk, talks about objects and shapes that actually take up space. So when you, when, you, when you poke around in these fundamental questions and just ask things like, how can you have a bunch of, a bunch of zero-dimensional points make up a line which has, which has dimension, and you get answers like, these things don't actually exist. It's like you're in the realm of debatable philosophy. Can we not talk about the, the relationship between mathematics and the real world, especially when the orthodox position is that mathematics doesn't actually perfectly relate to the real world? So if any of that seems reasonable, like, oh, hey, those are reasonable questions, you're thrown in the world of mathematical heresy because these things are supposed to be have sorted out for the last 2,000 years, and I would say they aren't. Yeah, it's so interesting. The just being reminded of the fact that it is a choice to view mathematics in a particular way or economics or, or any other area of, of knowledge. And it could be otherwise. We could mm -hmm. have a different methodology. We could view it differently or approach it differently. And it's, it always has struck me as odd how questions themselves, not even the conclusions you come to necessarily, you know, if you come to a conclusion that's radically different from the status quo, okay, if people get outraged by that, that I guess that's one thing. Um, I'd rather have argument than, than outrage, but it's, you, you, I get it. But it's the, it's when people are outraged by the asking of the question itself, like, Hey, <laughs> yes. Hey, why, why do we do math this way? Like what would happen right. if it was based on, um, something that does make logical sense or can be viewed in the real world? What, what would that look like? And it's like, right. oh, well, no, that math doesn't work that way. Steve, you engage right. the literature. There's reasons, you know, right. it's like, well, why, why, why is the question so heretical to even ask? Um, and I don't think it's necessarily, you know, nefarious or conspiracy theory or powers that are threatened, although those things can come into play at times. I think there's some fundamental, like, fear of finding out that something, a, a paradigm we took for granted wasn't true, even though it's happened all throughout history and we know it's likely mm -hmm. to happen again. There's this strong, like gut level, emotional resistance to sort of dispassionately asking questions like, hey, what if everything about the way we do math is wrong and there's a totally different right. way to do it? <laughs> right. And that's, yeah. that's a hard thing to combat because no matter what, you're going to be accused of being uh, crazy or arrogant or, or a great many things. And that's not always unfair because someone who just always says every assumption everyone has is always wrong and everyone's doing everything wrong. Like, you know, there's a reason that these things come about and it's good to respect mm -hmm. those, but it's, it's a challenging place. I imagine, which, which is what leads me to the question I was going to ask about your supporters. I want to get into how you deal with haters uh, mm -hmm. in a little bit, because mm -hmm. I'm really interested in your, your approach there. But even sure. harder than that, I would say would be supporters. So you have a network of people who support you financially or just are fans of yours, follow yours. Is it, is it hard for you when those people say, oh, Steve, I liked you so much until you did this. Could you, you know, <laughs> you're really great on 
philosophy and epistemology, but don't get into the math stuff, okay? Can you not, you know, or, or send you a, a personal message, not just a comment on Facebook that says, Steve, come on, you went too far this time, but a personal message that's like, hey, Steve, um, look, I really like you, but I, you really, you did it, like, you did it wrong this time. Yeah. You need to stop. Yeah. As one of your supporters, as a friend, you know, you're embarrassing yourself. How do you deal with that? Yeah, that's only happened, I think, twice um, since I've started. Really? And, yeah. Uh, my So I've got a really good group of supporters that I think appreciate the breadth and um, radicalness of the work that I'm doing, so, which so has been great. they're really there for the fun, the fundamental idea of finding those core logically consistent truths. They're, they're not supporters who glommed on because one time you said one thing that they liked about uh, political philosophy or something. I think, I think some of them are, but when it, like I, I have people that, that regularly leave, but they don't leave like nasty messages. Huh. Um, so it's, it's just naturally people, you know, maybe every week you know, I'll have people join, I'll have people drop out, but it's, everything's, um, I don't, there's no tension involved. Um, and I think more that's civil when they put their money where their mouth is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I have had a couple people that have essentially done that and they were brought in. I think, I think it was actually through the mathematics ironically. And I did a, I, I also do work on politics and the person was like, Oh man, I thought you were doing this because you were trying to build a rational worldview and a, a based on logic and these, these things. But I, I didn't want this to be a platform for, I think he called it a cult of personality. I was like, do, and he was brand new. So, I mean, he hadn't seen uh, some of my stuff started really talking about politics and the philosophy of politics. And so it, it stings a little bit because it's like, well, that's a bummer. You know, this is somebody that was excited about some of my work. But if you think if you're upset that my work is broad, then I'm not your guy. I mean, my like my, the Patreon page where I have my supporters, it says on there, I am creating a rational worldview doesn't say I'm, I'm contributing around the edges in just a few areas of math or logic or whatever. Uh, it's a worldview. And if you ground your worldview in logical reasoning, as I have, which is the subject of my first book, Square One, The Foundations of Knowledge, if anybody's interested, it has really big implications because people very quickly get illogical and they, their foundations become wobbly in all kinds of different areas of thought. So my honest perspective, and this, this comes again because I'm a selfish thinker, and I'm not doing this for money, I'm not doing this to please people, is screw them. If it's the case that there are individuals out there who would say, you know, my evaluation is that you shouldn't comment about this area, I'd say, go screw yourself, because that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm about. My whole thing is I'm doing this to discover truth myself. Then I will try to communicate that truth as best as I can to people who care. You got an issue with something that I said, that's your problem, it's not my problem. I'm not, I'm, even though these people who are supporters, who treat me well, have a good relationship with, who support me, I am not serving them. You know, that's not my primary goal. I don't, I don't wake up and think, okay, how can I create value for my Patreon supporters? I do some of that. You know, I, I do a little bit of that because I have to pay the bills. It's fundamentally, I got ideas I want to sort out. I want to sort through this stuff. And on the side, I also have to find a way to communicate in a way that people appreciate so that they'll want to fund what I'm trying to do. You know, I think in the long term, so anyone who puts creates content and begins to build any kind of following relatively early on, and this probably crops up at multiple times, but fans, followers will sort of test you to see if they can steer you, to see who's if they have power as someone who supports you to shift you or get your attention or and they'll mm -hmm. kind of throw these little tests out there. 
And if you, and if you think, Oh my gosh, I'm like, I got to please my fans, whatever. And you give into that, you're, you're kind of headed in a real, a real bad direction fast. Mm -hmm. But if you, Mm -hmm. if you show, look, I'm not afraid to lose you as a fan or a follower. I am doing what I am doing and you can follow me if, if you want or not. Um, and you establish that in the long run, I think that pays off so much more because people are respond. They respond to, they're attracted to Mm -hmm. people who have a reason, a purpose and a consistency and who are not controllable you know it's 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 like we right. always want to like turn our heroes into objects of our control but then as soon as they let us we don't respect them anymore i mean you see this mm-hmm. in romantic relationships right so there's mm-hmm. a really paradoxical thing there to sort of stay you know it's cliche as it sounds stay true to yourself stay true to that is very hard when you get a little bit of early success and your and your supporters are like don't go this way go this way you know right um so that's that's pretty cool now steve I'm going to, I'm going to be real level with you. You ready? I'm going to be blunt. Do it. You are what I would describe as, well, at least online, you have like a, a prickly personality. (laughs) You're not like a warm and fuzzy guy. And actually there are times where I see you engage with people on Facebook and in comments and stuff. And there's a part of me (laughs) that says, Ooh, Steve, you could have like taken the edge off that tone. Cause like the, Look, I know you. These people don't know that you're a nice guy. You're you're coming across like you're not a nice guy, but I know you actually are. And like, there's a part of me that's like, why is Steve so combative? Like, you like a good fight. You're not afraid of it. If someone says something rude to you, you're really blunt. You're not afraid. And I don't mean like ad hominem, like stupid stuff, but just you engage with haters in the comments. You you have a very different approach. Then I do with stuff like that. Now I don't get nearly as mm-hmm. many as you do because apparently mathematics is the most you know <laughs> offensive thing you can write about. But I certainly get all the time a lot of people that you know will comment and be sort of haters and critics of everything. And my approach is either to not respond or to just like make a joke or whatever and just sort of laugh it off. You tend to kind of get into the fight a little bit and tussle mm-hmm. a little bit. Is that mm-hmm. a deliberate strategy? Is that something that? you like, uh, you don't like, has that evolved over time? How, how do you approach that? Yeah. So it has definitely evolved over time. Um, I think partly because as my work has grown in popularity, I don't quite have as much time as I used to. When I, when I first started, um, doing, uh, creation of content and really even just research, I wasn't producing that much. I would pretty much talk with anybody in great detail for a long time about anything. I had a very naive notion that like, oh, everybody is also just <laughs> purely interested in the truth. And that's the only the, the only purpose of communication is truth seeking. I think that means I'm probably on the Asperger spectrum or something like that. Signs. <laughs> but anyway, so that I can't do that anymore. And a little bit of a little bit of me is sad because I can't engage. And I'm sure in the process of not engaging with everybody, I'm sure I have not engaged with somebody that actually is genuinely interested in truth seeking and an honest pursuit. And that kills me. I really, I, I struggle with that because I want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt if they really are interested in truth. But for the haters, it's partly strategy. It's partly because uh, part of my work uh, is to demonstrate what I consider to be pettiness and anti-intellectualism of the academic system. Now that that it includes many academics, and I've had public fights with academics who I would say are petty and into anti-intellectual and aggressively disingenuous and probably not good people. And I want to expose that. But a lot of it is also from students of the academic system. So some of the most arrogant and mistaken um, hate that I get is from PhD students. This is like the the group of people that really are foul, and it's because 
they have just enough knowledge where they think they know what they're talking about, but they don't have enough knowledge to realize they're totally clueless. So usually, usually, I shouldn't say all the time, usually professors are a little bit more open-minded. They're a little bit, they understand the history of ideas a little bit more, a little more uh, open to foundationally different ways of approaching different areas of knowledge, but not PhD students. They've taken a few classes. They think that when they're in the class, they are learning pure truth, pure unadulterated truth. And therefore, anybody that disagrees in any way is a complete lunatic, idiot, and a crank. What I found is, one, it's a great demonstration of the shortcomings of the academic system when you poke these people. You know, they throw punches, you throw punches back. And I, what I, one of the strategies I use in doing this is something like auto-humiliation. So some of these people put themselves out there, and all you have to do is get them to demonstrate how vacuous their thinking <laughs> is. I was talking to somebody, well, I, well, maybe I shouldn't give personal examples. I was giving, I've had many conversations with uh, uh, PhD students in economics and, and philosophy and mathematics, and it takes a very short exchange before these people re reveal they are totally clueless. And what I want to do is show to all of those people who are out there who are interested in the world of ideas, but they're intimidated by, you know, bullies, really. They're in intimidated by intellectual bullies and say, look, these people are not to be feared. These people, they punch, you can punch them back. They actually genuinely don't know what they're talking about. The trouble is they think they know what they're talking about, so it takes a little bit of work to reveal that they don't actually know what they're talking about. So that's a little bit of strategy to, to encourage people who are also a little more shy maybe than I am or a little bit less willing to fight than I am. The other is it's good marketing because when you're having these fights uh, online, it generates a lot of controversy, it generates a lot of views, generates a lot of interest. And why is it the case that mathematics, you know, saying that pi is a rational finite number, why in the world does that generate so much hate? Like, why does it generate the most scathing comments ever? Like, you're, you're, you're the intellectual equivalent of a rock. It's like, what? I'm, talk I'm talking about circles. Why, why, why this emotional reaction? That generates a lot of curiosity. So I think it's, I think it's good strategy in that respect. And finally, um, I do enjoy a good fight. I mean, I've been involved in the martial arts for, since I was 13. Um, I enjoy fighting. I enjoy the process of fighting. I enjoy competition. I enjoy a good chess match or table tennis or whatever it is. So I actually usually don't mind it that much. I do find it, oftentimes I find it pretty, um, pretty fun. Would you say you have a chip on your shoulder? Um, I would say it's I much, much bigger than that. That <laughs> I... Because I care about the ideas and, and I care about the truth getting out there and I despise intellectual dismissal, I don't have a chip on my shoulder. I have my sights set on the credibility of academia and the participants in the academic system. So I am totally fine. In fact, that's one of the one of the secondary motives of my podcast in the long run um, is to contribute to the chipping away of the credibility and the trustworthiness of the academic system, because I view modern academia very much like the church. I think it is very much a, a, a system for perpetuating groupthink, orthodox ways of thinking about things, um, dismissing people who disagree about the foundations, and I find that to be uh, a promoter of anti-intellectualism, which I hate. So it's not like a chip on my shoulder, it's like a, it's a motivating force that I have to, to demonstrate the truth, which is that I think this system, the experts, uh, we've got some fundamental errors we have to correct. You know, it's funny what you mentioned about you like a good fight. I have, e even though it's sort of not my 
typical MO personality wise necessarily and, and kind of just the way I approach things to, you know, to sort of go looking for fights, whatever. I kind of avoid that type of thing for the most part. I've gotten way more comfortable with it and I actually have realized I love arenas where fighting is the norm. So, you know, take something like, you know, even like hip hop, the idea that different rappers will release a a track that's just completely a diss on some other rapper and they'll go and they'll have this, you know, battle Um, or in, you know, sports when there's a lot of trash talk or there's sort of long standing drama between one athlete and another, (laughs) even when it gets like classless and whatever. I love that. I think it's great. I think a good old fashioned, you know, let's just like, throw some punches and get it over with. And intellectually, I found when it comes to like philosophy, I'm always frustrated when nobody like, I just want to fight and engage. And when some, and when nobody wants to, because it's, it's too personal. Like I'll I'll do it. I'll even take a side that I don't necessarily believe in. Like, let's talk about consciousness. Does it exist outside of the material plane or not? Let's just like get into it. And I think a lot of people immediately They can't, it's really hard to argue one specific thing. So some of the specific claims you're making, for example, you know, hey, would it be possible to do math that assumed that there, you know, a point does take up some amount of space or whatever. It's not so much that people are afraid to fight that. They're really afraid that if they fight that and lose, it's going to lead them 10 steps down to some conclusion that they're terrified of. Mm -hmm, And, mm -hmm. And I think that's a really hard thing to try to confine the areas where we're sort of let's tussle, let's fight, let's go at it. Cause I'm all about that. I love it, but I think it's so hard for people because they're always afraid that if they give ground in some area, it means you're going to next like sneak away their whole worldview. I, I've been mm-hmm. debating people this question of consciousness before just for fun over beers with some friends. And it was like, they kept thinking, you know, that I was trying to make the case for the existence of God, which I wasn't, I was, that's like 30 <laughs> steps removed, right. From, from anything. But I think it was, there was such a, reaction a negative reaction to they've seen that okay i've seen this before you're trying to lead me somewhere and i think that makes Mm -hmm. everybody sort of shy and unwilling to kind of just Mm -hmm. engage in some downright intellectual sparring yeah well i think there's i think there's self-interested reasons at play here because there's a lot of truth to saying if you give up some ground you may not like where the conclusions lead i think that's true but that's a that's one of the reasons that philosophy is so dang hard and it's so dang important and if you're not if you don't familiarize yourself with other ways of thinking about a subject or a topic then when you find your fundamentals questioned you have a kind of an existential crisis and I mean, math is just the perfect example, but it's in areas of thought. It's also in areas um, like the martial arts is another area where I, I like to give a lot of examples. There are countless karate masters and kung fu masters who have dedicated their lives 20, 30, 40 years to mastering kung fu. And they in their dojo, in their little world, they are top of the heap. Everybody respects them. They've got the, you know, the black belt, the 10th degree black belt, whatever. But when somebody from an outside school comes in that has a little bit more uh, tussling experience outside of the rule set of Kung Fu, let's say they have a a background in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and they say, hey, why don't you and I fight? Let's not fight under the just the Kung Fu rules or the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu rules. Let's just have a fight. Let's have a no a no rules fight and see who's going to win. The Kung Fu person is most likely going to lose and it's going to be an embarrassment and a demonstration that their 40 year commitment was largely built on sand if they thought that their the style that they've mastered is you know effective self-defense 
Same thing in, in uh, theology, if you're talking about the existence of God, in both directions. There are people who are professional theologians who have assumed for 30, 40 years God exists. They cannot possibly comprehend for the preservation of their self-identity that God doesn't exist. Similarly, there are people who base their self-identity on the non-existence of God. They are atheists, and they've been that way for 30 years, and it is just part of their fiber, and they really can't entertain the idea that maybe they haven't heard all the arguments for the existence of God. So it's these people who have overcommitted to their one area of thought or their one discipline that I really think, you see it everywhere, they have a horribly difficult time of giving up some of those foundational presuppositions. And I think that's why so many people hate my work, is because I'm examining all the foundations and all these areas of thought and find most of them to be lacking. But there are little small schools of thought in, in uh, every discipline where I think the foundations are right. So in the martial arts, it's like grappling. Like, like the Brazilian jiu-jitsu, for example, especially true maybe 30 years ago, that was actually the correct foundation. And then you build your martial arts skill from there. In uh, mathematics, it would be something like finitism. It's an extremely small school of thought, and yet I think they actually get their foundations right, and so you have to build your, your work from there. Just area after area where people are unwilling to challenge the fundamentals, and I think they overcommit and get them wrong, and that's why so much <laughs> revision and work needs to be done. So I want to ask you about specialization, because um, I've, I've heard you mention before, you know, one of the advantages you have is that you're not a specialist, and the academic system tends to incentivize going down narrower and narrower rabbit holes so that you can create a doctoral thesis that's truly unique. And by truly unique, it means it's got to be an entire thesis about Irrelevant. You know, one word in one booklet by Foucault and a modern right. interpretation or whatever. Um, right. But to, to almost play a devil's advocate here, because I don't think I have ever met an academic in my life who won't say, oh, there's over-specialization in academia. There needs to be more interdisciplinary communication. And most of the time, I think that just means I wish people in other disciplines knew more and appreciated my work in my discipline. Right. Um, but, but it seems like such a common trope that everyone feels like in the intellectual realm, too much specialization, too much specialization. Yet, there's like, if you zoom out from a broader, even look at the market as a whole, humanity is is advanced in leaps and bounds by the division of labor by specialization mm -hmm. why why is that not a good thing why is somebody focusing on one really tiny area of thought and just immersing themselves in it and becoming a, a total master of it why is that dangerous why is that not just part of the market for ideas it's not necessarily dangerous but it's dangerous in practice in the world of ideas because when you get hyper specialized you're usually removed from external real world feedback so in the world of, uh, you know, car repair, you can be an uh, expert specialist, but if you do your job wrong, you're going to get feedback, you're going to lose your job. That's not the case when you're the expert about the word, one word interpretation in Foucault somewhere. There's no, there's no feedback. So what happens is people commit themselves to mastering this, this one way of, of thinking, and because they don't have a breadth of knowledge, they've not examined the fundamentals. They assume the fundamentals are true, and they keep building, they keep building, they keep building. I mean, what follows from the existence of a square circle? Well, I would say, you know, you can spend 40 years discovering what follows from the existence of a square circle, and you've wasted 40 years of your life and probably negatively contributed to the world of ideas because you've got the foundations wrong. So I don't respect somebody that's specialized in something that's foundationally wrong. You especially see this in in the realm of religion. I think there's truth to be found in religion, but I think it's mired for the large part in a bunch of nonsense, nonsense that's built on bad foundations. So 
the I have no problem whatsoever with specialization that is grounded in foundations. But you got it. The specialization might come after you've grounded it in the fundamentals. So I'll go back to the martial arts. If you have a a broad picture of the martial arts in the world of self-defense, and you've decided, okay, Brazilian jiu-jitsu or Gracie jiu-jitsu, this is where it's at. Even though it's not going to encompass a bunch of, you know, Thai kickboxing or whatever, it gets the fundamentals right. I'm going to spend 40 years studying it. I totally respect that. In fact, you're probably going to master a field that is massively practical. It's grounded in truth. You're going to get, you know, your nine degrees of, of uh, black belt, and that should be respected. It probably means you know what you're talking about. But again, the martial arts is this area where you have feedback. You know if your fundamentals are right or wrong because people can fight. You don't have that in the world of ideas. There's not enough good fights in the world of ideas. This is a theme that's emerging. There's, there's not enough feedback mechanisms to say, let's, let's get these out there. I mean, if you want to introduce a new type of uh, deodorant, uh, you have to compete with hundreds of others. You have to figure out a better distribution system, marketing system. You got to have a product that works, find a target demographic, and you got to get out there and get in the fight, so to speak. And I don't want to frame everything as a, as a zero-sum game because I don't think it is in the big scheme of things. But there's not a lot of that in the academic side of the intellectual world. But what you are right. sort of pioneering, and there's you know a few others out there who, who have, are sort of independent intellectuals, um, and I think a lot of others who are sort of uh, maybe layperson level, a little bit less deep, independent intellectuals, there is that feedback, there is that marketplace, and it's it's really exciting. Well, okay, so that that actually makes me wonder. A question that I've thought about quite a bit. Do you think that academia even matters? Like, how relevant is it to the world? Are, are these professors who are doing all this really narrow research that, you know, in academic journals where, you know, you've seen these studies before, an average of six people, you know, reads an article published right. in an academic journal or whatever the number is, um, right. The median is zero, I believe, actually. Yeah, because nobody, (laughs) the referees don't even read some of them. Um, What is, like, to even even say, I'm going to go to battle with these academics and I'm going to reveal this institution, are they already irrelevant? Are you actually giving Mm. them more attention than they warrant? Do they have no impact on the real world? So, like, what's the point? How about just ignore them because no one's listening anyway? Or do you think they have, in some subtle way, a much more pervasive influence on the thinking, the paradigms of the general public and the way that we live? Now that's a, that is a very good and difficult question to answer. And I'm, I may have made my evaluation wrong here, so I'm totally open to being corrected. Here, here's what I think. Academia is too big a word. There are parts of academia which are toxic and useless and counterproductive and anti-intellectual. One might even say that's the majority of academia. In fact, I think that's the case. But there are still parts that can be rescued. There are some areas, more in the hard sciences perhaps, um, that are a bit more respectable and actually making progress. But he, here's my thoughts on the topic, and I might be wrong. Right now, there is a cultural notion that thinking comes from the intellectuals within the academy, that the big ideas filter down. And because there's that belief, it's actually kind of a correct belief that you would average people on the street, if they want to give some superficial veneer of intellectualism, they'll cite thinkers that come from the academy or in newspaper articles, a journalist will cite work that comes from the academy. So in practice, the academy is still influential. And in that respect, I think if I can contribute to breaking the respect that people have for the academy, for those people who are actually interested in the world of ideas and don't just just want to give the appearance of being smart, um, 
if I can break that, that hold, then I don't think I will engage as much um, with the academics or their theories. Mm. But I don't think we're at that place anymore. I think right now we're still at the very beginnings of the, the internet revolution that's changing all these you know, um, different markets. We're at the very, 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 very beginnings, I think, in the long run. And so I'm, I still kind of feel like I'm fighting the church, right? The church used to have the massive amount of cultural influence, that they were the ones that sorted out the truths about God, and then they would feed it to you if you paid them. You know, they would feed you salvation for a price, but you couldn't think for yourself. And in fact, you know, when the printing press was invented, people lamented it because well, a lot of the, the, I would call them academics or the churchgoers, the priests lamented it because they thought, well, this is going to mean that people can read and interpret the word of God for themselves, but they can't do that. They need us to do that for them. So I think I, I support the, uh, the creation of the printing press and I, I want to help that cultural idea be demolished. Just like nobody thinks, or a few people think, that the church is going to sort out all these things and then hand it to you because they're the spiritual intellectuals and you just put your head down and do what they say. Few people believe that, I think, in the West. Um, I, want to make, I want to try to make it the same kind of phenomena um, with, with academia. And in fact, that's, I, I'm, this is a good correlation because my background is Christian evangelicalism. That's where I was brought up. So I do... I do want to help those people who are, I think, stuck in a bad religious mindsets where they do submit to the authority of their pastors and their, uh, their churchgoers. I also think that's destructive. So I want to try to help in, in both directions. For this, uh, helping people think independently for themselves, which is not—when you actually um, talk to people, that's not a very popular idea, the idea that you are the one that's got to think through these ideas yourself. That's still not in our culture. So until it is, I think I have to engage somewhat with these people's ideas, if only to demonstrate how vacuous many of them are. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting sort of take on the, you know, the state of the, I don't know, industry, if you will. I, I almost wonder, I don't know enough about martial arts to know if this is true, but I was thinking as you were talking of uh, perhaps there's an analogy of back, back before the days of all the mixed martial arts being so prominent and so popular, I suppose you could have this undue level of respect for, I don't know, let's say karate because it's in Karate Kid or whatever. And people who sort of don't know any better, if someone says, oh, this guy's a black belt in Taekwondo or whatever it might be, oh, wow, all this respect. And and as long as that's the case, the people who sort of know what real fighting is feel like, I want to I fight that guy and show you that I'm going to kick his ass, right? Yes. I want to show. But now, today, the game has changed so much that the average person is going to be like, you know, boxing or you know oh taekwondo exactly. let's see you get in the ring with an mma fighter and you know exactly. get your ass. and so now it would almost be like bullying for conor mcgregor to like show up at a at a dojo of some fancy form of martial arts and be like let me yes. show you guys who the real boss is right because the yes. the tables have turned and i feel like we're in the process of that turn i almost feel like it's unfair sometimes not yet but like, it's not going to be long before it'll be like, Steve, buddy, these academics, like you're just bullying now. You're picking on these. They, they're irrelevant. I feel bad for that. You know what I mean? We're not there now because I, I think they do have that level. But I think that's changing. I love the analogy. Uh, and in fact, that is what happened in the world of martial arts. The 20th century was the best century for martial arts ever. And it was because of this guy, Elio Gracie who is a Brazilian guy who uh, is an amazing story. I won't go too much into it. Long story short, 
prior to like the 1960s, though you had a thousand different styles of the martial arts, all of which were convinced that they were superior and few of which actually com- competed amongst other schools. They were very, they were very insular. This guy, this weak guy, Elio Gracie, learned a style of jiu-jitsu from Japan, imported it um, from Japan into Brazil, modified it because he was so weak, so he had to change the techniques so that he could do them, and then essentially invited people from all over the world to Brazil and say, hey, come here and fight me, no, no rules, and we'll see who'll win. And, and for like 30 years or whatever, this, this dude was doing it undefeated, kicked everybody's butt. That's the foundations of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And in fact, mixed martial arts pretty much exist because of these, this Gracie family. So his, he and his, some of his sons went to the United States and founded the UFC to demonstrate the superiority of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And they, they totally revolutionized the sport. In the 90s, I think it was the 90s, um, UFC was started. It was this no-holds-barred uh, no competition. The Gracies won it. It was this uh, young guy, Hoist Gracie, who was a small guy, destroying these huge, like, six-foot-five, 230-pound wrestling savages. Putting the, he got them in triangle chokes and choked them out or, like, knocked their teeth out and stuff. And demonstrated to the world, this is actually the superior technique. And since then... You can't be a mixed martial artist. You can't really be a practical martial artist without learning Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So that that literally happened. <laughs> you're you're gonna be you're gonna be the the Gracie of ideas. All right, let me show you. All of you are wrong. I've got the right foundations. Come and fight me. Come and spar with me, and uh, we'll see which style, which approach to the uh, the intellectual life, the the pursuit of truth, uh, which pursuit or which approach wins the fight. <laughs> Thanks, Isaac. I like to think so. Yes, I like the analogy. It's a, it's a very fun analogy. Um, so I want to ask you just a couple more things. You you mentioned that you you consider yourself a writer first and foremost, so that's what you enjoy the most. Learner. Learner. And and through writing is, is sort of your preferred medium. Um, you've got the podcast and the videos. I know that those are really effective at reaching an audience, gaining and building an audience. And I've learned from listening to your podcast, you're a very good interviewer, very, very good for topics and individuals that I think are a challenge. Um, I've done enough podcast interviewing, uh, mostly badly, to (laughs) to know that it's hard. And especially when you're going into a lot of different areas of specialization with people who often are not accustomed to talking to a, a, you know, sort of lay audience or more general audience. And you do these great interview breakdowns. Can you tell me, have you, do you have like a deliberate strategy or approach to when you're interviewing someone who is an expert on something, whether, and is it different if you largely agree with them or disagree with them? What, what's the way that you approach interviews? How have you sort of learned the art of a good interview? Yeah. Um, it's a good question and it does vary slightly from person to person. Um, so the, the way in which it varies is like, if I'm going to talk to an academic, I'll, I'll look at some of the writing. I'll find there, you know, if I'm, if I'm in a, I've done a lot of traveling so depending on the city, I'll see what the universities are. I'll see what the what the faculty uh, is, if they look interesting. I'll look at some of the work, if they look like they're competent writers or they're doing interesting stuff. Then I'll, I'll email them. Sometimes I send them a list of questions beforehand, so I just sit down for a half an hour or an hour, do a little bit of research, figure out the, the types of questions I'll ask them to make them comfortable and, uh, and conversational. Um, a lot of times I don't, do, I don't do preparation. And really... Hmm. The reason that I I've gotten that feedback from several people and it's because I'm selfish again This is because I'm selfish because the questions I'm asking are really my own questions. Mm -hmm. I want to know and 
uh, a lot of times I'm asking the questions, just like if I'm debating somebody uh, or fighting somebody, however you want to put it, I ask a lot of questions. I try to get them to talk about their concepts rather than me talking at them. I do that oftentimes to demonstrate errors in their thinking or demonstrate absurdities. I'll just give you one example. So I was, had, a, had a conversation at Oxford with Timothy Williamson, who's arguably the most prestigious living logician. We had a great conversation, super nice guy. In fact, I agreed with a lot of what he had to say, more so than most of my guests. But we were talking about the metaphysics of mathematics, and it came up through a series of questions that um, we were talking about the metaphysical status of concepts. In fact, we might have talked about this on your show before, where essentially, in order to preserve particular ideas in classical mathematics, you had to accept the idea that everything exists, including concepts that have yet to be conceived by a mind. So all future concepts, things that humans haven't thought of yet, still have some type of thin existence, he said. And so I gave the example of like um, a misreading of a book. So if somebody's reading a book and they read, you know, Harry Potter has a scar on his elbow and they just had a misreading. And that happens 50 years from now. It hadn't happened before. It happens 50 years from now. The concept that comes in their mind still at present has a real type of existence. He said, yes, of course. Now. I thought that was absurd. I thought that was, in fact, I thought that was a demonstration that, oh, well, obviously we've got some kind of problem here because that's a very silly idea. Would that be but like was, a like a Platonist sort of approach? Yeah, okay. Definitely, yeah. Um, a Platonist talking even about concepts, not just about numbers, but even about concepts, which I think is just, <laughs> I think it's crazy. But that was elicited in a totally respectful way just through a series of honest questions that I had for him at that time. It was like, okay, well, if this is true, then is this true? If this is true, well, what is this? And so it just, it just led to that result, which I found, you know, a satisfactory result. So most of the times when I'm having these conversations, that's what it is, is I'm really genuinely engaged in what the people have to say. And so I ask questions, you know, that are on my mind based on the way that I'm thinking about things. Yeah. And again, like I said, it's it's selfish. If people don't like that, if they, they want some formal structure and like how an academic interview or intellectual interview is supposed to go, probably not going to like my podcast because it's very personalized just to my own way of thinking about things. You know, that's such a great insight. And even though I've sort of stumbled into this several times myself, I still have to remind myself of it that whether it's in writing or podcasting or whatever, always, always come back to being selfish. And not only is it more fun, more enjoyable, and look, at the end of the day, I'm doing this for me, but it also produces a better outcome. You you just said one of the reasons you're a really good interviewer is because you're asking things you're genuinely interested in of people of whom you're very interested in their ideas. So if someone says, Steve, I really want you to interview this person, and you do it because a lot of people are demanding it, not because you're actually interested in that person and you can't, mm -hmm. you, you poke around and it just doesn't get you excited. Like I've done this a few times where I feel like I should be interested in this person. So I guess I'll, and other people want me to sure. Okay. Why not? And it's always like a really rough interview <laughs> because, because I'm not being selfish enough. Now, now maybe some mm -hmm. people are professional enough at producing, you know, writing and, and podcasting where they can always make it good, but I'm not at that level. I've got to mm -hmm. have, I've got to have my own curiosity and, and learning to be more curious about a greater number of things to be interested mm -hmm. in almost everything I think helps tremendously. Um, mm -hmm. once you start to become genuinely curious, it, it makes you better. But I think that's just such a good thing to come back to. Like if you weren't, so selfish about what you're pursuing, you would also be worse at it. It wouldn't be as enjoyable to listen to your stuff. Mm -hmm. um, that's what makes you ask the good questions. 
Well, thank you. Um, and I, I also am fortunate here in one respect because I pretty much disagree with everybody about everything. So I <laughs> always have questions and I can always try to ask questions that are going to reveal these things that I think people are wrong about. So it's pretty much effortless because if somebody says something, I'll probably disagree with it. And then I just ask questions about it. And then that brings us into philosophy and talking about metaphysics, you know, very, very easily. And I've learned a bunch too. One of the, one of the things like this podcast series, I've spoken with a ton of people all over the world about all kinds of different topics. And it exposes you to so many different ways of thinking. Mm. I think one of, the, one of the things that a lot of philosophers, even professional philosophers, don't realize is just how many okay, internally coherent ways there are of thinking about ideas mm. that are radically, radically different that you're just not going to get unless you encounter it, unless you sit down, you talk to people, you know, who are prestigious and you talk about the fundamentals. So like, for example, this Timothy Williamson guy, after the conversation, we had like, I think we spoke for maybe an hour uh, in person because we, we hit it off really well. We actually went out to um, like lunch in the inner sanctum of Oxford, which was awesome. Like a fancy butler was there who was serving us, you know, fried mushrooms. And we were talking about Zeno's paradoxes. And it's like, I want most people because they want to appear intelligent and whatever they're not going to ask basic questions about like oh do you think calculus solves Zeno's paradoxes because supposedly calculus solves Zeno's paradoxes well that's not me I actually want to know because I think that these fundamental ideas are wrong you're the guy who's the best in the world on this topic can you explain the fundamentals to me the, just the very basics and sure enough we had a great conversation. I didn't convince him of my point of view, but we talked about things that nobody, a ways of thinking about Zeno's paradoxes and infinity and calculus that pretty much nobody's going to be exposed to because they're too, too timid to ask questions about things, you know, that, 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 that don't make sense to me. So if, if you and I are talking, or if I'm talking to anybody and what you say doesn't make sense to me, I'm going to ask a question about it. There's probably going to be somebody in the audience that is going to think something similar, you know, and that just makes for a great conversation. It's so funny, Steve. I just had a flashback. I had completely forgotten about this of a story many years ago. I think you might have been in college. This is when I first met you. I was at a foundation for economic education seminar and you were doing like photography and videography there. Mm -hmm. And we went out to grab some beers one night with some of the other faculty and staff. And we're kind of sitting around drinking beers, talking ideas, sort of, but in a very casual sort of fun way. And so my, you know, MO is you know, sort of talking about stuff. And when someone shares one of their, you know, theories about whatever political philosophy or economics, and it's a little different from mine, I usually look for the place where we're similar and kind of try to build on that and say, well, yeah, tell me more about this. And kind of try to build some rapport, build on that. And I'm going to wait until I really know someone well. I'm not going to challenge them on things where unless I feel like it's really worth it or we're really good friends, I'm going to try to find the similarity and build on those and see what we can get and establish some rapport, build some sort of goodwill. And you had this approach and it wasn't like you had no interest in either being liked or disliked. You weren't just trying to be contrarian, but you were like a relentless pit bull. I remember. And I happened to agree with what I think you were getting at in all these cases. So I kind of just sat and watched, but people were kind of casually like, oh, well, you know, you couldn't do that because X, Y, and Z. And they'd rattle off some sort of casual thing. And then we all sip our beer and then kind of laugh. And maybe my approach would be like, well, X, Y, and Z isn't always true, but whatever, and move on. But you're like, why? What, what do you mean? <laughs> and I remember you were just, and you kind of like 
owned these faculty. Like they were getting really frustrated that you wouldn't just let them have their loosely defined sloppy thinking. We're just drinking beers. We're all basically on the same team here. We, we have very similar ideas. <laughs> and you were like, but what do you mean? What do you base that on? Are you saying that you can know this? Blah, blah, blah. And I don't remember what it was about, but it was absolutely maybe methodology and economics or something. But it was, I remember I was just struck with this guy has like an unquenchable, like he wants to know why people think what they think. And, mm -hmm. and it was almost a combination of frustration with a loose, a loose answer that wasn't really getting to the fundamentals as well as probably an undue level of respect because you assume mm -hmm. that everybody does have a good reason for what they believe and that they have mm -hmm. thought through these things. And you're like, and I think many people haven't <laughs> and you ask as if, of course, everybody's going to have it. And like, why would anyone be offended to give their answer for what's their? And it's so funny now that I remember that story to see what you're doing now and to see how you have applied that combination of like curiosity, relentlessness, frustration, and respect for other people's arguments. Well, uh, thanks, Isaac. That's that's flattering. That's actually got me in trouble many times. In fact, I think at that job uh, <laughs> a couple of times. Uh, but th this is the thing that actually I'm, I'm glad you, you you set me up here. So my disposition is to find disagreement because I I'm not going to learn if, you, if we go, oh, we, you and I agree. Okay, I'm that great, but that doesn't mean I'm learning. Where I learn is say, okay, where am I wrong? So I believe this. You believe I'm wrong. So why do you think I'm wrong? And and a lot of people take that as aggression. It's like, <laughs> oh, you're trying to smash. But it's not at all. It's a hundred percent. You actually like, want to know what they think, uh, why they think you're wrong. Not like exactly. it's not a threat. Like, oh, you're telling me I'm an idiot. You're telling me I'm wrong. It's like, no, tell me where I'm wrong. I genuinely want to know. And that's a very rare. Exactly. Trait. Yes, and, and, and that's just this thing I do with mathematics all the time. Like, okay, if you're out there and you can explain to me some of these questions that you think have been resolved, great. T like, tell me, what, where do you think I've gone wrong? And it's funny because at that time, and that was, that was many years ago now, you say, you know, I might have had an undue respect. That was part of the popping of my, of my bubble where I still had this idea, even though I had a bad undergraduate experience, I still had this idea like, oh, the academics have sorted these things out, you know? And so I was approaching these questions like, oh, okay, so I have these particular intuitions about ways I'm thinking about it. it probably was the methodology of economics because that's a thing that came up a lot during that period of time. Like, okay, but they've sorted these things out, so I'm wrong, but I, I don't yet know why I'm wrong, so I just have to ask them, you know, and I'll figure it out. <laughs> but then I kept getting these these waffly answers where it was like, oh, well, you know, blah, 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 some debatable thing. Engage the literature. And they didn't, <laughs> right, right, and it's in their literature. Yeah, go read whatever. It's like, okay, well, can you, can you tell me? Like, I'll do that, or I did that maybe in some times, and I didn't find the answer. And sure enough, there's this, there's this, oh, well, you know, whatever. We all agree. We're all the experts. We agree. And so therefore that, you know, case closed. And so that was, that really did contribute to this position, this modern position I have now in academia, which is like, these guys don't know what we're talking about because they don't go down to the fundamentals. They don't need to because they all agree with one another and they view themselves as the experts. So if they all agree that the foundations are X, it's not something that they're, they even are willing to challenge, which totally, you know, it was, it was like a, I kind of lost faith. Um, during that, those summers working with me. There's also a component of you're a guy whose mind is never off the clock. At least it appears to me. And there was sort of a component of Steve, yeah. we, we spent the whole day diving into discussions of this stuff. We're kind of just having a beer here. Like we're kind of just being playful. 
do we have to go back to work again? Do we have to go back and like get all serious and philosophical? And yeah. I just feel like you can't turn it off. Your mind is never off the clock. No, it's my recreation. I love it. It's not, it's not, I don't view it as work at all. It's like, I, I, that's, if I had a bunch of free time, this is what I would be doing. So, and it's funny too, because I, this does go down to like psychology because the idea of sitting around having a beer and like <laughs> social bonding it's not really my cup of tea. You know, I would love to sit around and have a beer and talk about ideas so I can learn. Uh, but if it's just like, I don't even really know how it works. Like I don't, I don't how you like the small talk thing and the smiling and the, the friendship thing where there's not ideas there. It's, I'm not very good at it. <laughs> so, you know, it's funny is ironic as it may seem, because if people were to observe that scene, it'd be easy to be like, Oh, Isaac is kind of like the nicer guy. He's, he's kind of, he thinks people are, you know, nicer and worth treating a little bit more gently and Steve's a little colder, but I actually think it's the opposite. I have a much lower view of people. Like I, mm. I don't want to get into deep conversations with almost everyone because I basically mm. assume, eh, and maybe this is arrogant, whatever, but I've just sort of learned over time. Like, look, we're probably going to get into something that's going to make you uncomfortable. You're going to hear about one of my beliefs. You're going to find it uncomfortable. Then you're going to make all kinds of irrational claims or shut down or whatever. I'm probably not going to gain anything from it. Let's talk about sports. Maybe we can, maybe, if, or let's just chit chat. It's possible we build some goodwill later on. I find out, you know, somebody that might be a good customer for my, I'll just kind of build social capital because most people are not worth engaging on an intellectual level. That's oh, my default no. assumption. And you have this oh, belief I, that everyone has some interesting belief, some interesting thing worth examining. And I kind of have this yeah, belief that very few people do. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So that's such I'm, a good. I'm kind of an elitist and you're more of a, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Well, so here's the thing. Okay. It is definitely the case. You can learn from everybody at all times about everything, but in a nonlinear way. So you can ask a child about questions in philosophy and their answers might be wrong and might be ill justified, but you learn something about the structure of minds. You learn something about belief systems. So I love, I, I remember when I was living in upstate New York, there was a, there was a guy every Sunday or Saturday, I don't remember, um, who would play the guitar I was this like out of tune guitar. He was this like burnt, burnt, badly burned out hippie. Might have had some mental issues, you know, didn't dress himself up, was stinky. And he was talking about the, uh, how Jesus was the devil and how he had this experience in a bathtub where an angel talked to him and he wrote out this thing. And everybody viewed him as the, the typical crazy guy. Well, I went out of my way to have a long conversation with him about his beliefs. Why did he believe that? I'll listen. He handed this little, this little document out that he wrote up in Word. Okay. I'm interested in it, not necessarily because I think it's going to be some, you know, the truth. Maybe it is, could be, but because I'm going to learn something about his, how minds work and how belief systems work. So you believe X because of Y, you believe Y because of this, you believe Z because you had this experience and you think that a vision of an angel telling you this truth about the Bible is satisfactory criteria for believing in X so much so that you're out on the streets every Sunday. So this is, this is a, in, within the realm of possibility of how the human mind operates. So this is like the dude that everybody dismisses is this fascinating, just the minds are so incredibly fascinating. And this is one of the reasons I, I love talking to people about wrong beliefs. I love having conversations with people that have ill justified beliefs because you learn about what persuades people. You learn about how minds get structured in such a way where there is not of ideas and how people deal with contradictions in their, in their philosophy. 
So I am just totally fascinated by that. And, and every time that I talk deeply with somebody, I'm rewarded by it. And it's just in a nonlinear way. They're not probably not going to teach me some deep metaphysical insight that I haven't you know, thought about really deeply, but they're going to teach me all kinds of things that I don't know, kind of meta level stuff. That's uh, a quality that I think is, has made you, you know, as successful as you've been thus far. And I know is going to carry you far in the, in the pursuits that you're going after. I love that quality, that relentless, that relentless curiosity and almost a, almost a demand to walk away from every encounter with something added to your knowledge. Mm-hmm. But it, it, const- it, it constantly happens. It's, it's not like something that's forced. It's just like a genuine curiosity. And I would say, I'm sure this will, people will laugh at this, but I would say it's an intellectual humility. I don't know so much like, I think everybody's wrong about everything and my theories are better than everybody else. That's true. But <laughs> I think I know a tiny, 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 tiny amount. And every, every moment I'm awake, I look at anything, literally anything, because take, for example, you're looking at a, at a white wall. Well, what can you learn from white wall? You can learn a great deal. You can learn about the contents of your, of your perception. You can learn about how your visual field works. And you can learn about what happens when you don't have exciting visually, visual stimulus entering your visual system. What does your mind do? How does your mind wander? Why does it do that? And there's just a, there's no waking moment where you can't learn like really, really big things that are fascinating. Do you think there is a, do you think there are times where you might be able to coax a really interesting idea or truth or a bit of knowledge out of someone better if you first look for a way to sort of connect in a friendly way, establish some common ground, find areas where you agree, and then sort of tease out of them in a less confrontational way some idea versus a directly saying, tell me why I'm wrong or why do you believe that? You know, do you, have, yeah, do you ever I, feel like that gets in the way of you pulling stuff out of people or do you feel like it just cuts right through the crap and gets to the interesting stuff without all of the small talk? Well, it depends on the person. So almost, I mean, really, if you, if you talk with people who don't engage with me online, like in personal conversations with people, unless they're academics and they're steeped in the stuff and I can cut through a lot of the crap and they can grapple with the ideas, I don't, I don't think I'm off-putting very much because I, ask, I have a way of, of asking questions that get people talking that I can ask interesting questions and learn from. I mean, it happens all the time. Um, and I, I don't think I burn bridges that way. I'm not, I'm the academic. not trying to imply that you do. I was just curious. Yeah, yeah, no. I find myself well, I, I sometimes taking, taking the roundabout way. Like job one is I want to establish a uh, connection with this person. And then maybe if I feel like it's worth it, I'll try to like, you know, get some, get somewhere more deep with it. But um, sometimes I don't get around to that. And you seem so driven by getting that depth. Do you ever find mm. that you have to sort of deliberately you know, look for ways where people might feel threatened by going right to an intellectual conversation. I think I'm too impatient. Um, so if it's the case that, uh, that in my, in my method that works, if I have to play a social game, I'm not going to bother. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just not, and I'm not, I'm not good at it and I don't have the desire because my, my, my mental faculties can be employed elsewhere. Yeah. You know, if I'm not getting anything from the conversation in a way that I can for most people, then I, I'm not, and I'm not spending my time wisely. I love it. I, I love it. I think you you are willing to opt out of more social games than um, the average person. <laughs> I think that's true. And I, yes. and I think that works to your favor with the work you're doing. Steve, give us a quick teaser, a preview of what's coming next. What can we be excited about to see in your work? 
Oh, goodness. Uh, quite a lot. Okay, so I don't know the order of these things, but I'm going to be releasing uh, a short book on a resolution to the liar's paradox, which is going to be um, in-depth. Uh, I had a little – my most popular video I've released was uh, How to Resolve the Liar's Paradox. It's like a two-and-a-half-minute video, and over the past couple years since I released it, it's gotten a ton of comments and objections that can't be addressed in two minutes, so I'm going to do a little short book on that. Um, I'm also in the process of um, writing my first book that's probably going to take a couple years to write called The Mind and the World. It's my first book on metaphysics, um, and it's going to be about the relationship between the mind and the world and setting a lot of things up for a lot of future work. Um, I also have, if people are interested in, in more practical things, at some point this year, I'm hoping to release a um, uh, a course, an online course about writing, about Ooh. writing nonfiction. Um, so I I think that there are lots of people out there that have ideas that they can't communicate their ideas in a clear way. They use a bunch of flowery prose and too many words, and they don't cut down to the the meat of the subject matter. They waste the time of the readers that are reading their writing. Um, so I'm going to put a little course out, try to make a little money, of course. It's so funny, Steve. Um, I've actually told people before who have who have sort of objected to, you know, stuff that you've written or arguments you've made where I've said, oh, go check this out. This is great by Steve. You should check it out. They're like, oh, I don't really agree. And whenever I say, well, send me some arguments that disagree. It's usually so unreadable that my response is. It is possible that what you sent me is a refutation, but Steve's is written in a way that's understandable. Uh, and until I find something else that is re understandable, I've got to default to the one that's well-written. <laughs> right, right. I don't have time for yeah. this gobbledygook. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and the thing is, too, the thing that drives me nuts is because I do a lot of this research and reading other academics' work. They're terrible, terrible writers. And I think, I think honestly, it's because many of them are terrible thinkers. So they don't know how to communicate in a non-vague way because they're vague thinkers. Well, but if you, if you hide behind the difficult language, you reduce mm -hmm. the number of people who are even able to criticize you as well, you know? Yes. And you expand the ability to say, well, that's not really what I meant or right. whatever. And it's not quite clear and it's advanced and it's only a concept you're going to learn in, you know, third year of your PhD in mathematics or whatever it is. It's people hiding behind opaqueness. This is a, the longstanding this, problem. That's this course that's sounds amazing. Before. I mean, even, even, I mean, I know so many people, I know people who make tremendous amounts of money in the corporate world. All they do is they take stuff that some technician wrote and they write it for the sales team to be able to understand yep. it or whatever it might be. Yep. So that's, that's yep. really cool. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that'll be done this year. Um, and I, I think that's going to be, like I said, that's what, that's what a view, one of the few real practical skills that I have is writing. And I've always had, <laughs> I've always had people, even when I was in college, this is so funny. Uh, another way to insult academia. <laughs> I remember when I, I was uh, in college and I was writing papers, which I knew at the time were not well written, and and I wasn't a great writer then, uh, and I was like, eh, you know, whatever. But I would get really high grades, and then I, some of the professors would say, "Oh, Steve, you know, you're a really good writer." I thought, "What in the world are you talking about? I'm a terrible writer." And then I discovered why they said that, and it's because I was graded in comparison to my peers, that the the students, the other students, were such unfathomably terrible writers. It's it's that almost, by comparison, it almost yeah when you see the average writing of a uh, student in an average university, it almost makes you think that the world has got to end soon. It's, it, I mean, I'm not kidding. I remember t TK was working on a, he was at one point pursuing a PhD in philosophy and he was a TA and he had to grade all these papers and it was like a 300 level, whatever, like just junior seniors course. And he brought him over to have me help grade him one night. And I was like, 
are we grading for grammar and spelling? And like, he's like, no, we can't. Because if we did, literally nobody would pass this class. <laughs> it was so, it was so depressing. Yeah. So yeah, no, it is, it's garbage. I mean, it's utter shocking, shocking garbage. Poor so I could understand. Yeah. A lot of professors are the same way. So <laughs> they have to I grade that I, stuff. that's where I pity them. Right. Oh, I know what that is. That is like the ninth level of hell to think that you have to spend time grading these these papers that are written, the concepts are terrible, much less the writing, much less the punctuation and the grammar. So there's a, there's a big niche here, I think, for value creation. I love it. So you've got the writing course, the, the long project book, the short book on the liar's paradox, and I assume there is more coming in your um, new approach to geometry. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, every week I'm doing podcasts as well. Um, and I'm trying to write more. So now that my traveling has largely slowed down, I'm trying to write, um, a lot more. Yes. So, um, I, I have coined the mathematics that I'm creating base unit mathematics and there's a metaphysical reason for that. Um, but I just did a little, as so I wrote a recent piece about pi and about circles and metaphysics, um, which, essentially makes the case that everything is finite. And so if in your, in your way of thinking about mathematical objects or geometry, you have actual infinites, there's a problem there. So it's just, a, just following what goes from that, that idea that everything is finite. You've got a huge amount of work that needs to be done, a huge amount of mathematics that needs to be revised. So I, a little bit in geometry now, I'll have other, I'll have other areas over the next, I don't know, probably 20 years I'm going to be writing um, <laughs> on this particular topic. I love it. You can go to steve-patterson.com, steve-patterson.com, and you can find everything there. I would recommend subscribing to Patterson in Pursuit, the podcast, checking out Steve's articles, sign up for his email newsletter, get on Patreon, you know, follow Steve if any of this stuff is interesting to you because he writes frequently enough that you stay engaged, but not so frequently that it's just like a constant drip of, of weak stuff. When Steve writes and produces something, it's always thoughtful. It's got some heavy duty content there. It's usually worth engaging. And if you, if you're not interested in a, you know, a guest on the podcast one week, you very well may be the next, cause there's a lot of topics. So Steve, this is always fun. And I really look forward to uh, all your next projects. Thanks, Isaac. I appreciate having me on. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Talk to you later.